Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Well, have you read this one? Read this one. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hello, everybody. Christian Swain here, host of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, with another segment of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me today, as always, is Shelly Sorensen. Shelly, how you doing? I'm doing good, Christian. How are things at the San Francisco Library? They are great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, what do you got for us this week, Shelly? What book are we going to dive into? We are going to talk about Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink by Elvis Costello. Oh, man. Another of the 1980s huge artists, Elvis Costello. Well, why don't you start us off with uh, a favorite song from him? Okay. We're going to listen to What's So Funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding. Yeah. I always wondered that myself. <laughs> As I walk through this wicked world, searching for light in the darkness of insanity, I ask myself, is all hope lost? Is the only That's a great one to start us off with, uh, Shelley. So, okay, let's get a quick summary of, uh, of the book. Okay. Well, this is Elvis Costello's memoir. Covers his entire life, plus the lives of his parents and grandparents. Oh, sounds like a big tome. It is 672 pages or <laughs> it is 18, a big tome. 18 hours on the audiobook, which he narrates. 18 hours? Yes. Oh, and he narrates. Yes. It's really, his narration is great. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. It's chock full of background about a huge number of songs, the process of writing them, who played on them, how they were produced. And all of the great uh, stories about musicians that we know and love that he played and collaborated with. Sounds like the encyclopedia of one Declan McManus. It is. And, you know, it took me a long time to read because, you know, he tells so many great stories about the songs that he wrote and performed and how he did that, that I had to keep switching back and forth between my iPhone songs and my, you know, going to YouTube and Hoopla and finding the songs so that I could listen to them uh, after hearing about how he wrote them and created them. So a lot of detail on uh, the creation of the uh, the songs, the art itself, uh, along with uh, the various players. Uh, and of course, that would cause you to uh, immediately go and want to hear that song. Yes, it was it was uh, very tempting for a fan you know, not to digress and go off and start listening to music and buying a lot of new music, too. I bet you did. Yeah. So uh, now uh, to, get, to dive deeper, I mean, you say it's 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 not just about him, but also his family and his uh, his, his his dad, I know, was a professional musician. So let's talk a little bit about that. OK. And his grandfather was a professional musician as well. He 
He uh, was a bugle player and mm. he played in bands on ocean liners that went to America, you know, back, you know, before people were usually going to America. And his father, um, Ross McManus, was a, a musician, also a trumpet player and a, and a singer with the Joe Loss Orchestra. Yeah, I knew about that. I know he, he was, a, was a professional musician and toured throughout the country. I think he wrote a uh, couple of songs or maybe a commercial or something like that uh so uh that probably was quite influential in uh young Declan's life it was he 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 got to go with him to work you know in the evenings sometimes at the Hammersmith Pally where the the uh orchestra was performing and people were dancing and kind of see what life was like as a actual working professional musician and um and also he had the benefit uh Declan had the benefit of having a lot of records around the house that his father had to memorize I think his, 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 he met his mom at a, a record store. He did. Uh, yeah, Ross and Lillian met at a record store. She she worked at the record store, and she's very into music and very knowledgeable about music. So it was probably oh. one of the attractions. I want those parents. Yes. And so anyway, you know, some of the uh, records that he brought home were Beatles records, you know, when they were first hitting their fame. Um, and one, the first one that he, he was just awestruck by was please, please me. And he asked his dad if he could have, have it. And his dad gave it to him and then started leaving all the Beatles records around for Declan to listen to. Yeah. It always seems like the, uh, breadcrumb trail goes back to the Beatles. Yeah, right. And in fact, very exciting. His father with the Joe Loss Orchestra was on the same bill as the Beatles at the uh, Royal Command performance for the Queen Mum and uh, Princess Margaret when at that, oh, that time. Oh, no, you're kidding yeah. me. Really? Yes. M- remember when John Lennon said that funny thing? Uh, yeah. Uh, the people in the cheaper seats clap your hands and the rest of you if you just rattle your jewelry. That's right. And you know the song that Ross sang during that performance was If I Had a Hammer, and you can see a very funny video of him doing that on YouTube. I think I have seen, I, I, I saw a, uh, I, I want to say an HBO special uh, about Elvis Costello, and I think that video was on there. Yes, I think you're right. Very cool. So uh, tell us a story about uh, him kind of getting signed and um, uh, the songs that, uh, that, you know, are a big part of this book. Yeah, he, well, he got his first guitar like a lot of kids did in those days and, you know, teamed up with a friend, a school friend. And, they, and, and he started writing songs very early. He was uh, just really wanted to write music and he made demos. He got married very young, probably, I think around age 20 and had a baby right away. And, um, in the, in the middle of the night while the baby was sleeping, he would record his demos on his tape deck and take them around and try to get people to listen to them. Okay. And then I think finally got signed by Stiff Records, a small independent, uh, in London. Yeah, that's right. He he went to Stiff and um, they liked a couple of his songs. And so they had him in for a recording session and um, they brought in, uh, they, they had the, the band Clover, which was an American band from Mill Valley who did uh, rock, uh, country rock. 
and uh, Huey Lewis sang and played harmonica with them, but he wasn't in on these. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, so they were actually the backing band for the first album, which oh, was so my not the attractions. Tr- right, not the attractions, which is, you know, I think m- most people think that it's the attractions on My Aim is True, but it was really this uh, country rock band with a pedal steel guitar that was... That uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't sound like the punky Elvis Costello that I remember. No, but they did a good job, didn't they? That's a great record. It is a great record. Um, my uh, the, the song that I was most intrigued to hear about was Watching the Detectives because they um, recorded, the stiff recording studio was a tiny job and um, he talks about being in the recording studio as a singer like a bug pinned behind glass because there was so little room on it wow. and then um they recorded the song watching the detectives with a couple other studio musicians and steve naive who yeah. became the mm-hmm. attractions keyboard player who was only 19 a classically trained piano player came in and did the um, very cool piano versions. Those atmospheric uh, yeah, sounds and that there. Whole, that whole song was really um, inspired by Elvis Costello's love of film noir. Oh. So he put in all this just kind of moody, atmospheric, interesting music there, and that, including this bizarre drum sound that sounds like a shotgun. All right. Well, uh, let's hear Elvis's homage to film noir in watching the detectives. song uh, uh, to, to put us in the in the mood of Elvis Costello here. So, all right, so Elvis uh, has got a family connection to music, obviously from a couple of generations. Uh, he gets signed, uh, My Aim is True comes out, um, you know, the songs begin to take off, and, and then what happens? Uh, they put out another album right, right away, My um, this year's model. And, yeah, uh, and also Armed Forces. Th- that is with the attractions mm-hmm. With now, the attractions. Right? Steve Naive, Pete Thomas, and Bruce Thomas. Yeah. And also they put out uh, um, Armed Forces, too. Yeah, quite the trifecta there, uh, those three yeah, albums. Yeah, excellent. Awesome. They, um, they, they visited America a few times back and forth and did the whole crazy tour bus circus circuit. I was going to say circus, too. Uh, all across <laughs> the, the circus yeah. circuit <laughs> back and forth across America. In fact, there's a, a really funny thing on YouTube about Geraldo Rivera going with them on the tour bus around the United States in the in the, in the late 70s. Yeah, oh, it was God. so bizarre. Um, and just how how weird it was, you know, to be famous and be interviewed and all this stupid. That co- has got to be on YouTube. Yeah, that is. It is. It's really funny. Up, They're in the supermarket. Um, 
anyway, they, so, you know, and he's a young, uh, you know, a young father and a young married guy. And he just, you know, gets totally overwhelmed with this fame and the girls and the booze and the pills. It's rock and roll. It's rock and roll. That's right. Wow. All right. So then I know, um, <laughs> I know there's this famous Saturday Night Live story that has got to have been featured in the book. It was, it, um, you know, they they were in the states, and um, the Sex Pistols were supposed to be on Saturday Night Live, and for some reason they can't, they couldn't get over from from the UK. <laughs> that happened a lot to those guys. Yeah, wonder why. Um, <laughs> yeah, and. And so they called in um, Elvis Costello and the attractions kind of at the last minute. And there was not very reliable. The uh, the Sex Pistols. No, I imagine not. Um, so, so they called in, uh, Elvis Costello to do Saturday Night Live and he just talks about kind of the, the lead up to it and how it just got more tense and more tense. In fact, uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd came into their room to kind of pull a joke on them and they had no framework. They had never seen Saturday Night Live. They didn't know what was going on, but they knew that, that they were, co- they're a record it was company. An, an American version of Monty Python, but you probably wouldn't get that, yeah. uh, at that time. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yeah, so their record company wanted them to do two specific songs, and one of them was Less Than Zero, and uh, uh, yeah. Costello just thought, it's a cool well, song. it's a cool song, but if I'm going to take America by storm, that's not the, the one that I really think is going to do it. And um, so, you know, he wanted to do Radio Radio, and either the, com- the record company or Saturday Night Live didn't want him to do them to do that song. Mm. But uh, he, he... Yeah, for good reasons, I can understand why the broadcasting group would not want uh, Radio Radio to be played live on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it was a real anti-commercial song, though, yeah. uh, interestingly Corporate enough... Radio. He, he wrote it about British radio and not about American radio, but it certainly could be. And they're not too dissimilar. Right. It could be interpreted. <laughs> sure, one is uh, government owned, the other is corporate owned, but, uh, you know, they, they're all pained to the same master. Right. They're not letting a lot of, cre- you know, flow and creative influences in and out. Um, so they stopped the performance. They started less than zero and they stopped cold after the first line and Elvis Costello said I can't do this and they launched into radio radio Yeah, very famous moment in the history and annals of rock and roll so ladies and gentlemen I bet you know what we're going to play now radio radio I was chilling in the shine and the light night style doing anything my radio advised with every one of those late night stations playing songs bringing tears to my eyes I was serious is a radio anthem that is a great song i love that song amazing amazing uh and a moment uh that saturday night live bit i know he uh had um basically what uh, the the story goes that uh uh that lauren michaels uh, basically flipped him off the entire uh song and and then banned him for uh for a decade i i think uh, i think 15 years yeah, yeah I, I think it was right around there and so he, he got to come back and then uh, of course you know they always make a big deal out of that and it's always uh, a fun joke now with uh with saturday night live so 
All right. So after the uh, the first uh, three or uh, three or four albums, I guess uh, you know uh, the uh, the rock and roll lifestyle's gotten to him, uh, and uh, things begin to change a little bit. So let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah. One one way he characterizes that was he got tired of yelling so much, which he did a lot. I guess <laughs> a lot of that loud rock and roll stuff, and he 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 just. Um, you know, was open to a lot of different kinds of music and a lot of people. Um, he, he had a chance to, you know, meet a lot of uh, other musicians. And well, I, I can see in his DNA, uh, it was obvious that uh, he'd been exposed to a lots of different types of music. So it was just uh, natural probably to gravitate to all these other artists that he has worked with over the years. He, he did. He worked with so many different artists, some of whom have been uh, uh, featured on your podcast, Christian. Uh-oh. Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, uh, of course, the Beatles. No, they're coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I, I, I do know that uh, um, uh, he. There's an interesting story with uh, with Bob Dylan in in the book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Yeah, they. You know, they had a. I think a mutual respect for each other and kind of circled their. Yeah, singer songwriters. I yeah. can see that. Uh, they're, they're two different generations. Yeah, it circled around each other for many years and maybe decades um, where they would kind of meet up and say, oh, yeah, we should get together and work on something. Um, but, but they never quite did. And then just a few years ago in Australia, they were playing a festival and they uh, met with each other in a coffee shop a little bit earlier in the day and were kind of uh, reading aloud and reciting some new lyrics that they were both working on. So kind of going back and forth. Like in a collaboration thing? No, or? no, like more like a card game or a... Oh, um, competition. Yeah, like a little... Oh, a, little, a rap battle. Yeah, a sparring match. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Elvis uh, kind of characterizes it as he kind of, he got the last word and he read off some lyrics of some great song that he had just written and Dylan gives him kind of the eye, the stink eye. Uh-oh. Oh. And uh, later on, Elvis Costello was uh, chagrined to find out that Dylan was going on before him in the lineup. And nobody wants to go on after so, Bob Dylan. So Elvis Costello and the band is going to uh, close the show? Um, I believe so. I think he said six. You know, Dylan was on at six and he was on at eight. And they were kind of sweating about that, him and his band. But, but he, he wasn't too worried because he knew that Dylan usually didn't play all of his hits during his sets. He, he was kind of well-known. Yeah, every show is very different for him. Yeah, yeah. well-known for not pandering to the fans, <laughs> no, yeah, uh, yeah, even though they're yeah. shouting out, you know, play, a change is going to... Masters of War, right, yeah, that's what right. I hear all the time whenever I go to a Dylan show. Everything, yeah. So so then Dylan goes on and, and plays the tightest, most of hit-based set that anybody's <laughs> ever heard. Hit after hit after hit after hit. Yes, and Elvis and his band are just wilting, just yeah, totally quaking in their boots. Dylan finally comes off the stage. The silhouette of a gunslinger was heading in my direction with a skip and a shuffle under his big wide-brimmed hat. There you go. I've softened him up for you, he said, as he passed on his way by. Oh. So Dylan had a little a little competitive kind of humorous streak going on there. Yeah, he's well known for that. <laughs> so now I also know that he got to work with a huge hero of his from the Beatles, 
Paul McCartney. He did. And he he has a whole chapter about working with, uh, collaborating with Paul McCartney. There were several songs, right? There were. and It was for a period of time. I I think so. And, you know, some of the songs went on some of Elvis's, one of Elvis's albums and some of them went on one of McCartney's albums. Oh, yeah. And um, he he even talks about, you know, um, writing a song and not quite knowing what to do with it. And McCartney just kind of coming in and saying, well, of course you have to do this, this and this on the chorus and and they did that and it was perfect it was like oh it was so obvious afterwards that that's what needed to be done that is an unknown inside uh piece of information is literally paul mccartney shows up at whatever sort of jam or musical event and uh, if there needs a song to be made um, he literally will make a song that you would put on the radio in like five minutes it's, <laughs> it's crazy i believe that song was for Elvis, at least, a very famous song for him, a comeback song, if I remember, from about the late 80s, I think 1989, Veronica. That's right. Written about his grandmother. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. His grandmother was having Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's play Little Veronica. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's a very meaningful song, um, very personal, obviously, um, but but still jovial in, in in some ways. The music the music gets you in a couple of different emotions. It's really really yeah. sweet. I think that's one of the things Elvis Costello does really well is kind of uh, juxtapose. You know, a, a certain feeling with the lyrics, with a kind of opposite feeling with the the way the music. Feels. Ah, many of the greats yeah. do the exact same thing. Yeah. All right. So, Shelley, wrap us up here. So, uh, first of all, what do you think of the book? Well, I really enjoyed it because I'm a, a great fan of his, but um, it, it was quite lengthy and a, quite a commitment to get through. <laughs> um, but, you know, enjoyable. Well, there's always that audible version that people can listen to. That's right. Take their time to it. But it also sounds like it jumps around, so you could like take pieces um, at different points of view. That's right. It's not a strictly linear. Uh, it's generally linear, but each chapter really goes back and forth in time and tells a whole story. So you could uh, dip into it uh, as you would like to, and um, you know, have a great time with his with his prose it's funny it's it's uh it's very rich i think i'm gonna listen to it Uh, i'd love to hear especially elvis himself uh uh, narrating uh it it can't be better than that no (laughs) and i i really i really appreciated the fact that um that as a rock and roll musician kind of coming into this new music he didn't cast off his moorings and kind of reject the past music um, and just go full force into new music. And he's always been open to all genres and collaborated with people from all different walks of life, like Alan Toussaint, the great um, songwriter yeah, and producer. He just passed away here not too long ago yes, as well. Yes, he did mm-hmm. in the New Orleans uh, sound. 
And um, one thing he said in uh, Elvis Costello says in his book is there's no sense in living in the past, but less still in denying it had existed. There was too much to learn and too much to love. Mm. So he's just a, an embracer of all kinds of music and all, you know, lover of all different uh musicians that uh created different kinds of music and and you know has a very rich history yeah it seems if you really look at most of the greats you're going to find that that they have hearkened back looked deeply know the history of uh of, of the music pull from it and then create something new that's right and he definitely does that And he talks a lot about pulling things from different songs and copying, but then coming out with something. Good artists great artists steal. Yeah, entirely his own. Great. Shelly, thanks so much uh, for uh, plowing through this this tome. (laughs) Can't wait to see what the next book is in a couple of weeks. So, folks, friends, please come on back, listen to the Rock and Roll Librarian in our next segment, Good night, good luck, we'll talk to you soon. Everybody, keep up the rock and roll. of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.